0: All right, we're going to spend some time now looking at the scriptures together. So if you have a Bible, open up your Bible to Isaiah. We'll be in Isaiah chapter 9. This series in Isaiah we've called Christmas Will Come. The big idea as we look at the prophecies of Isaiah is that God's people 700, 700 years before Christ... Uh, were looking forward with anticipation. They were longing for salvation. They had messed things up. Their world was falling apart. Exile, destruction, and judgment. And Isaiah says, this Christ, this hoped for hero and savior will come. So God's people were looking forward to Christmas coming. Now we on this side of these prophecies and the coming of Christ, we can look back that Christmas came, even as we look forward in anticipation that Christ will come again. Uh, The fancy word for that is Advent. That just means the arrival of something important, something amazing. So Christians use this term Advent to talk about the season where we dwell on the Advent of Jesus, the first Advent and the second Advent. So we've been looking at themes, hope, love, joy, and peace. This week in Isaiah chapter 9, we're looking at the idea that peace will come, the promise that peace will come. Peace at its uh, most simple level means no more fighting, no more war, right? That's kind of the basic introductory meaning of peace. But the Hebrew concept is much bigger than that. It's this word shalom. You've probably heard the word before. Shalom, which means peace, is something much bigger. It's the way things ought to be. It's everything being like you always dreamed it would be, full of righteousness, goodness, peace, happiness. That's what shalom means in the Hebrew. And we all want to capture those moments. We all have little tastes of that kind of shalom, that kind of peace, right? A special meal, good time with friends. And we now, as modern people, are obsessed with taking pictures of these moments, right? I find myself often in these environments with my family where I'm like, oh, I want to hold on to this moment. So you know what I'll do? I'll leave the moment get the phone, take the picture. And in a sense, I'm like leaving the moment so that I can hold on to the moment. You know what I'm saying? We, we long for those moments to just last forever. And that's the promise. Peace will come and it will stay forever. We'll be locked in it forever. And so the prophet Isaiah, when he's predicting this peace that will come, he uses a grammatical term that scholars use called the prophetic present tense or the prophetic future tense. Uh, not future, prophetic past tense and present tense, right? So he's talking about something in the future, but he says it like it already happened. So in a sense, he's he's locking that moment in time. He's disconnecting it from the reality of time because it is so sure. He's so sure that the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this, that he can talk about it in the past tense and the present tense. That's what we see in Isaiah chapter nine. We're gonna read chapter nine, verses one, Through seven, this promise 700 years before Christ that peace will come. It says in verse one, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end forever. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen? We believe that God's word is true, that it's reliable, but we need a spirit to to believe it, to trust it. So we're going to pray that his spirit would be with us. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would come and be among us, that you would help us to hear and love your word, that you would help us to believe that this is sure, that your peace has come and your peace will come again. Help us to know the peace that surpasses all understanding. Help us to be guarded by you, by your presence. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So the big idea is that peace will come. This prophecy, 700 years before Jesus was born, that Jesus would indeed be born. And so as Christians, we look back and and we can sense their longing for this day to come. And then we can experience that same longing as we're waiting for Jesus to return, for the peace to be final and to be settled. I think we need to be aware that we often try to achieve peace in two wrong ways. Instead of waiting for this son to be given, we often try to accomplish it on our own. Some of you are fighters. We thank God for your service. Uh, We thank God for warriors. Romans 13 says God uses warriors and police uh, to curb evil in this broken world. We thank you for that. But we have to realize that our fighting cannot achieve permanent peace. It may be necessary in this broken world, but it can't achieve that permanent peace. We can idolize our own ability in our flesh to fight and bring the peace here. Doesn't mean we just give up and check out but we gotta know that we need this future champion to come. We need to trust him. The other way that we try to wrongly achieve peace is by checking out. We go to the other extreme, right? We're like the world is broken, I'm just gonna get drunk. The world is broken, I'm just gonna get involved in as, as many pleasurable relationships as possible. I'm just gonna find whatever little taste of peace I can find in this world because it's so broken, and so terrible. And the scripture says again and again, those two ways in the flesh, of accomplishing peace fall short. Permanent peace is only accomplished through God coming for us in Jesus Christ. That's our hope. That's our hope. So in this text, we see that peace will come. We're gonna see it in three ways, three stages, if you will. Number one, we're gonna see that peace will come through the valley of deep darkness, through the valley of deep darkness. Number two, we'll see that peace will come when wars are over, when wars are over. And number three, we're going to see that peace will come in the miracle child himself. It's personal. He shows up on the scene. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. So number one, peace will come through the valley of deep darkness, through the valley of deep darkness. Uh, This is described with one catch-all term you'll see in the text, gloom in verse one. Gloom is used in the ESV, in the CSB, and in the NIV, the three most common kind of modern translations people use today, I'll use this word gloom. It just means this depressing valley of deep darkness. The New Living Translation says, darkness and despair. It's terrible. It's dark. It's hard. That's where we live, and yet the peace comes into that. We don't leave here to get to the peace. The peace leaves perfection to come to us. It's really beautiful. Now, I added the word valley. Valley isn't in our text, but valley should be familiar from Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. Our good shepherd is with us. That's our hope. Our hope is not us mag- you know, magically being out of the valley. Our hope is the shepherd comes and joins us in the valley. Peace will come through the valley of deep darkness. Do you know him personally in your valleys? of deep darkness? Or do you think, as we often do, the valley means he's gone. The valley means he doesn't love me. The valley means he's abandoned me. Scripture says, no, he comes to us in the valley. Verse one, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. So it's just talking about the judgment. All of Israel is experiencing this judgment. This land particularly, we'll get a few more details here of why they felt the sting of exile and judgment more than others. A lot of us don't know Zebulun and Naphtali. Part of the weird thing of reading the Old Testament if you're a new Bible reader is you're like, why are there all these place names that I don't know, right? Like you can just get a little tired of it. Like I keep hearing these weird names, these weird places. I don't understand what it means. But this next word, you're gonna know what it means. I'm sure, even if you're a new Bible reader. Okay, in the latter time... He has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Galilee of the nations. Does that sound more familiar? Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, the area of Galilee. This is where Jesus set up shop. And Matthew chapter four says explicitly that this prophecy by Isaiah came true when Jesus left his hometown of Nazareth because they wanted to kill him. And he went and set up his discipleship ministry around Galilee. That's when this prophecy began to come true. Galilee of the nations. It goes on, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. So when did the light come to this land of deep darkness? Well, when Jesus showed up. That's when this began to come true. true. That's what Matthew 4 says, that he's bringing this to fruition. This land of deep darkness. Why was the land in darkness? Well, they had these empires and armies that kept tromping through. It it uses the word way. It was basically a highway. Um, It was this valley, right? It was this way between waters and mountains where large armies could cross Israel if you look at a map and you study ancient history, you'll notice that Israel is located right in the middle of every great empire that's ever existed. You could just kind of put a cross like this and Israel would be in the middle. It's the crossroads of the world. Isn't that an interesting coincidence that God would put his people and his word at the crossroads of every great empire that's ever existed? Now, what this meant was Israel often got pushed around by invading armies going from one place to the other. You know, they're, they're leaving their empire and they're going to go conquer this empire, right? They're going from here to there. They're going from here to there. And specifically in Israel, which was as a nation, the crossroads, there was a little way by the sea, a particular area, some towns you had to go through that were the smoothest roads to get through, and, and that was Galilee. Zebulun, Naphtali. And so what this means is every time an empire came through, they they had to deal with all the instability and all the chaos and all the darkness of these armies tromping through. So Israel itself is dealing with this judgment, but particularly Galilee, this area. What's interesting is it made this area where Jesus set up shop later, it made it one of the most multicultural and multi-ethnic parts of Israel. So it's called Galilee of the Nations, Galilee of the tribes, Galilee of the ethnicities, right? Because it's all these other people groups there. Again, seems like a coincidence that Jesus would set up shop there in a place where he could reach every kind of culture that Israel had ever had contact with. Matthew says, this is a fulfillment. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. They've been living in darkness. A darkness in our world can be scary, especially for those of us here because it's sunny all the time, right? I know people that live up north, they literally get depressed when it's cloudy for too many months of the year. And here we have lots of sunshine, so it's a little harder to connect with. Um, But light is really important for growing things. Light is really important for bringing life. So this place of destruction was a place of darkness, and when Jesus comes in, he brings new life. An illustration of this that you see a lot in movies, I like to watch like end of the world movies and stuff. You know, There's this nuclear winter, there's ash everywhere. What does that do? There's clouds and ash coverage everywhere and it just kills everything. And then there'll be this moment sometimes where a little light breaks through and things begin to grow. It happens with volcanoes at a more local uh, level as well. Volcanoes spew all this ash all over the place. The fire burns all the vegetation on the ground. And there'll be weeks and months where it seems like things will never grow again. That's the valley of deep darkness. Some of you may be living in a place like that right now, relationally or financially, or even with your health, where you feel like nothing, nothing's ever gonna grow again. And the promise here is that God's peace meets us in that valley of deep darkness. A Jesus set up shop in the darkest, most beat up, most hated, most rejected area of Israel. And there he began to shine his light. So personally, how can we apply this? Well, we need to know, we need to believe that when we're in the valley of deep darkness, that God has not abandoned us, right? We need to know by faith, no, he's the God that though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'm not going to fear evil because he's with me. Not because I never experience evil, but because he's with me and he's my hope, my personal Lord. And then what that does is, and that makes us the kind of people that, that will go into other people's darkness. We'll start to look like Jesus, right? And uh, Mark, here's, you've heard this a lot. They said, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why is he hanging out in the valley of deep darkness with the bad people? He should just be with the good people, the rich people, the healthy people, but he would hang out with the broken and Jesus said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So the question then is do we believe that, that that's who we are? We're in darkness and we need Jesus. And then are we going to share that with other people? Will we go into the mess of other people's lives? It can be as simple as just saying, Hey, are you okay? It can be as simple as saying, Can I give you a hug? Can I bring you a meal? Can I pray for you? Can I talk to you about the hope that I have in Jesus? But Christians have always been the kinds of people that that move in to these valleys, this messiness, these hardships, and seek to show God's love. I think it's also important that we recognize there's circumstantial darkness. There's hard valleys that we go through, and we need to know that Jesus hasn't abandoned us. But the worst valley of deepest darkness that we could possibly go through is sin itself, spiritual separation from God. We are all sinners, and the Bible says we are all separated from God because of our rebellion. And that's the deepest darkness that we could go through. And Jesus promises again and again, if, if you invite me into your life, my light will shine in your deep valley of darkness. I will save you. You can have hope. That, that's the promise of the good news. Jesus says, I'll I'll come into your darkness. Don't stay there. It's hellacious, literally. You don't wanna live in the valley of deep darkness forever. Ephesians 2 says, we were dead in trespasses and sins. We were children of wrath. We were following the prince of the power of the air, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins. He made us alive together with Christ. Paul goes on and then he says, and that making us alive together with Christ brings us peace where there was division. And so true peace is knowing that God left perfection to be one with us. He's reconciled with us because of his initiating grace. And then Paul goes on to say, and that's what enables humans to reconcile with each other. That's how we have peace with other people because we know that God has made peace with us. And so one of the many applications of this is knowing that true separation, true darkness comes from not knowing God. But if we know God as he truly reveals himself as the one that brings us peace, then we have a peace to share with others as well. The second point is that peace will come when wars are over. Peace will come when wars are over. We see this in verses 3 through 5. Um, I'm aware at Fort Cavazos that some new waves of deployment are coming. Uh, probably next year we're going to have more people deployed than we've had in a long time, more people gone to war. When we first started the church in 2006, uh, things were really hot in the war, um, and the way the units were arranged was differently. We basically had just two big divisions, right? there's 4th ID and 1st Cav., And so 50% of our men were always gone to war. Like that's how we started this church. There was just always this huge bunch of men gone. So, first calf would come home, fourth ID would go away. Fourth ID would come home, first calf would go away. People were just always at war. And this true peace is an end to all wars. Someday, It's going to be over. I grabbed a picture. We always love to see these reunion pictures of a soldier uh, reuniting with his daughter. She was graduating from high school. She thought he wasn't gonna be able to make it. He was able to get home early and see his daughter at her graduation. She was happy, uh, crying tears of joy, we'll call it in the picture. But I love these pictures. I love these pictures of reuniting because the picture of heaven is is like the permanent reuniting, right? Just just no no more war. It's gonna be over. For good. So let's look at verses three through five and see how he describes it here. Verse three, Isaiah says, You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. So um, they're growing again, right? It was death and destruction, but now he's saying, You've multiplied the nation. He's saying, You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, right? At the harvest, you got plenty of food. Your, your pantries are full. Your refrigerator is stocked. You've just gone out to your favorite restaurant. Saying that's that's what this is going to be like, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. You got a bunch of stuff. That's that's a modern translation of that. Okay? You just went on a shopping spree. He's saying that's that's what it's going to be like. Verse four, for the yoke of his burden and the staffer's shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, these are all symbols of oppression, right? The enemy pressing down on you, evil pressing down on you. He said, All of this is gonna be broken. Look at the end of verse four, you've broken as on the day of Midian. The day of Midian is a hyperlink back to Judges. A lot of you probably heard of the Israelite warrior Gideon. you remember the story of Gideon? It's an interesting story. He's one of those people we kind of remember as a Sunday school hero. And then you actually read the story. He was a mostly terrible guy, right? And he learned to trust God, resisted again and again, And God achieved a mighty victory over these Midianite oppressors, over these other warriors through Gideon. It takes all kinds of convincing. It's a long story, a crazy story. I encourage you to go read it in Judges. What's interesting when he's fighting Midian is God keeps telling him to send soldiers home. He keeps saying, you have too many soldiers. Send them home. It's like the ones that are a little nervous, send them home. The ones that don't want to go on deployment, send them home. The ones that drink out of the wrong side of the water fountain, they drink in the wrong way, send them home as well. It's a really weird story. He just sends more and more soldiers home again and again. And he's like, I want it to be clear, when you have a few hundred soldiers and you're fighting thousands and thousands and thousands of soldiers, I want it to be clear, God says that he's the warrior. God is the mighty warrior that can save. And again and again in these Old Testament stories, he's, he's trying to clarify that for us as his people. He's like, ah, the odds are in your favor. It looks like you can win. I'm going to make it harder on you because God loves a cliffhanger. He wants us to be sure that he's the one that's met us in the deep valley, that he's the one that ends all wars. Now, again, we're, we're thankful for warriors. We're thankful for police. We're thankful for those that would put themselves in harm's way to help others, but eternally, God is the only warrior that counts. Eternally, he's the one that brings ultimate peace. And we have to remember that. Peace will come when wars are over. Verse five, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So this is a final end. I know soldiers, when you change units or when you get out of the army, you have to like check in your gear, right? not even going to check it in. You're just going to chuck it in the fire. You're just going to burn it. There's going to come a day when no one's even counting the expensive gear that you have anymore. It's just all wars are over. It's burning the fire. It's finished. And that peace will come through Jesus, through the mighty warrior that will accomplish all these things. So we have a built-in contradiction here, right? Because we keep saying, peace will come, peace has come. Christ will come, Christ has come, right? So is peace here or not? Is war over or not? The New Testament says that war is ultimately over already through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he has dealt the death blow to sin and death. And we can have this absolute confidence in the prophetic present tense and in the prophetic past tense that war is over. And yet here we are, we're still in the war. We're still in the trenches, spiritually speaking. We're still fighting. We're still taking ground. And so there's a built-in tension here that Christians live with. We often call it the already, but not yet. The kingdom's here, but it's not all the way here, right? We have freedom in Christ, but we're gonna have complete freedom when he wipes every tear from our eyes. Romans 8, I think beautifully paints this picture where it talks about the groaning and the longing we have for the completion of our adoption. Our adoption has already started by faith in Jesus. He's already saved us. We're already his. We have peace with God now. And yet we, we long for it to just all be over and complete and finished. And that's the picture that's being painted here. So I think in the context of this text, it's talking about the joy that we will have when this is complete. And then in the New Testament, we're told to have joy now because the resurrection shows that it is complete in some way now. We have this tension of rejoicing and praying. Rejoicing and praying. Philippians 4 is very specific about that. gives us specific instructions, right? Rejoice now that the war is over in Christ. And then pray. It doesn't feel like the war is over. Will you help me? Will you help me get to the finish line, Lord? That's the tension that, that honest Christians walk in. We walk in this tension of, Jesus, I trust you've accomplished this. The prophetic past tense it's done it is finished and yet we're still taking ground and there's still a completion to come and so we rejoice and we pray we don't just do one or the other we're not just the fake christians that rejoice all the time and pretend it's all done and we don't live in reality and we're not the whiny christians that just pray all the time and have no rejoicing we have to live with both of those some of us more naturally do one than the other right And we're called to do both. Philippians 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Why? The Lord is at hand. That should remind us of what Isaiah has already said. The Lord is at hand. He's here. He's he's with you. Psalm 23, He's meeting you in your valley of death. The Lord is with me. The Lord is at hand. So I can rejoice. And then he goes on in verse six, do not be anxious about anything. The present tense in Greek means don't continue in it. And so the way I like to interpret this, which is very grammatically sound, is anxiousness comes to you. Anxiousness just hits you. And he's saying, don't continue to be anxious. Don't just keep burrowing into your anxiousness. Okay, well, what? What do we do, Dave? Anxiety hits me. We live in the most anxious age that uh, social scientists have ever recorded, right? There's anxiety everywhere. When that anxiousness hits us, what do we do? Well, in everything, prayer, asking, thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Ask God, pray, 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 pray. That's what he's saying. He's saying rejoice because Jesus is with you. And then pray that he'll be more fully with you, that he'll help you. That he will allow you to endure. That as Paul talks about elsewhere in Philippians, that the resurrection power will surge through you, even in your suffering. That we'll know that this is all a supernatural reality. We rejoice and pray. I think a good way to say it is, God, thank you for conquering sin and death forever. Rejoicing. And then will you help me conquer sin and death today? Will you give me my daily bread? God, thank you that you've conquered sin and death forever through the power of your resurrection. Will you help me today conquer just today? Today has enough trouble of its own. Don't worry about tomorrow. Conquer today. Rejoice and pray. I'll end with this Paul Miller quote before we move on to the next point. Um, We want wars to be completely over now. We're still fighting, even though we know that in the resurrection, Jesus has completed the job, the death blow has been dealt. Paul says this in A Praying Life. It's a fantastic book about prayer. He says, just like Jesus, who lived as the perfect human, we are completely dependent on God. So Jesus showed this to us, right? He's divine, he's God, and yet he lives as a human. He demonstrates to us how to live as a human, praying to God. He says, just like Jesus, you're completely dependent. You needed God 10 minutes ago, and you need God now. You needed God 10 minutes ago, even if you didn't feel like it, and you need God Now, instead of hunting for the perfect spiritual state to lift you above the chaos, pray in the chaos. Pray in the chaos. Peace will come when wars are over. And part of the way that we demonstrate that we believe that Jesus is the way that all war has ended is we continue to pray and depend on him in our daily life as we take ground for him by the power of his resurrection. The third point is that peace will come in the miracle child the person and work of Jesus himself. The son who will be declared by Isaiah as a prince of peace. We, we already saw in Philippians how this peace of Christ, as we pray, guards our hearts and our minds so we know him experientially as peace. Isaiah here gives him the title of peace. Thomas Watson, Puritan, points out that Hebrews 13 describes the father as the God of peace. And then Ephesians 4 describes the spirit as the spirit of peace. And here in this text, we're going to see the son as the prince of peace. Peace will come in the miracle child. Uh, We see a longing for a child to come. A couple of chapters earlier in Isaiah, there was a promise that a miracle child would come. He'd be born to a virgin and we'd call him Emmanuel. What does that mean? That means God is really with us. And again, Matthew says that's fulfilled in the birth of Jesus, the miracle child. And so here we see this expectation being met prophetically in Isaiah 9, verse 6. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful just means awesome. Wonderful, right? Just like what it sounds like, counselor. We see counselors today when we're depressed, we need advice. Um, in the ancient world, a counselor would have been a specialty position for kings, right? Only kings could afford counselors back then, advisors. It reminds me of what the New Testament tells us about Jesus being our intercessor and being our advocate. They're at the right hand of the Father, speaking up for us, giving us advice, telling us what to do, counseling us and guiding us. It goes on and says he's called mighty God. Mighty God, this word, mighty is for a mighty warrior, Gabor, it's this Hebrew word, it's common, mighty warrior word. Sometimes it's attached to this general word, God, it's El. And so this general word for God can mean either, you know, the God above all things, Yahweh, or it can mean heavenly beings, right? Lesser divine spiritual beings. And so when you combine that together, you have a spiritual being who is a mighty warrior that conquers. That's what it's saying often used to describe God himself. Sometimes this phrase can just be used to describe a, a great warrior, uh, kind of like we'd say, oh, that dude's a god. You know, We don't say that very often as Christians, but people say that, right? He's, he's like a divine being. He's like supernatural. He's a superhero, right? That's what they're saying here. This son that we've all been waiting for, this coming king, this descendant of David is gonna be confusing to us. He's gonna be a miracle child, <laughs> People are going to call him mighty God. That goes on. What else will they call him? Everlasting Father. Everlasting Father. Our strict Trinitarian theology clarifies that we have one God and three persons, right? We have Father, we have Son, we have Holy Spirit. We see in the New Testament, Father and Son interacting with each other, a separate personhood there, even though they're one God. And that's hard for us to fully understand. Here, he seems to be confusing the Son with the Father, right? Right? He's saying, he'll be called everlasting father. Jesus is very clear. They're so one that if you see Jesus, you've seen the father. He says that in John 14, 9. If you've seen me, you've seen the father. How do we know the father? No one's seen God. The gospels are clear, except for Jesus, the one who was intimate with him, who knew him closely, his son. And if we've seen Jesus, we've seen the father. So people are going to call him the everlasting father. They're also going to call him what? The prince of peace. He's the one that will bring peace. He's the one that will bring peace. goes on in verse seven, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom, right? He's a human descendant of David. So all through the Old Testament, there's this prophecy that a son would come. And here it's being fulfilled. This son of David, 2 Samuel 7 says He's going to be a a different kind of descendant, right? Because his throne will be eternal. So it's no ordinary human king. He's going to come through the human descendancy of David, but he's going to be a miracle child. All these prophecies in the Old Testament only make sense if Jesus is who the New Testament said he was. They don't make sense any other way. It goes on and says he'll establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. When we see Jesus functioning in the New Testament, we see him fulfilling all the prophecies of Yahweh, the Lord of hosts coming in person to rescue Israel. We see him stepping in as Yahweh himself. And so again, this fulfills these prophecies that don't make sense. If you're reading your Old Testament, if you're a Jew reading the Old Testament, you're like, okay, Genesis 3.15, first prophecy, says Eve is gonna have a son, great, 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 great grandson, that's gonna defeat the serpent, that's gonna defeat evil. How's that possible? Okay, so then we read the rest of the Old Testament with expectation, right? The next son that's born, is this the one? Nope, murdered his brother. The next son, is he him? No, he's not him either. They keep sinning, they keep failing. We keep seeing these mighty warriors and we keep seeing these mighty warriors fail and sin. And so somehow the Old Testament is telling us a human is gonna save us all. And at the same time, the stories are telling us, hmm, that's not gonna go very well. There is no human being that can save us. Then there's all these other explicit prophecies in the Old Testament that say only God can save you. Only God should be your refuge. Only God can save you. Only God is a mighty warrior that can ultimately save you. Only God is your hero. Only God is your champion. Only God is the one that you should hope in. And then in Jesus, we see all these things fulfilled. We see the one who is a human descendant of the kings of David. And we see it also as mighty God, everlasting father. We see these fulfillments of this miracle child. It's what we celebrate at Christmas time, and we can kind of be numb to it, and I just want to encourage you to just just pause and, and not let all the chaos and the busyness of the Christmas season and a new year coming distract you from this miracle child. Would you know him personally? I grabbed a picture of a, a present under a tree. And I want you to just think about the joy of presents, right? Everybody loves receiving presents. I love receiving presents. Sometimes I like giving presents too, but it's really fun to receive presents, right? I love to open presents. Just think about someone saying, Here, here's a present for you. This is the best present, in fact, you could possibly ever get. And you're just like, oh, I'll look into that later. I want some new tech. I want some gadgets. I'll look into the best present ever another time when I've got a free day. Then maybe I'll look into that present. Don't let the busyness of our normal life, the distractions, the cares of this world distract you from Jesus, the greatest present that we could ever receive, the miracle child. Look at him, get to know him. Let him mess with your mind and your life. Let him upset the course of your history because he's worth it. This miracle child is our only hope. Receive him personally. Know the Prince of Peace, Uh, talking about God can be an abstract thing. Uh, Guys like me that like to teach the Bible, sometimes we can get distracted by philosophy and big words. We like to read ancient books, right? But but don't miss that it's not just abstract ideas. Don't miss, this is not just theology, this is a person who's the king of the universe who says, I care for you. I love you. I've come for you. Receive him, trust him him, that he has given himself for you, that he's the mighty warrior that you need. We need to wrap up here. Peace will come. And we see that peace will come through the valleys of our deep darkness. Peace will come when all wars are finally over and peace will come in the miracle child. And as I said, part of what we struggle with is the reality of, of knowing this peace is true and yet struggling and longing to see the peace complete living in the in-between. And Jesus's first followers struggled with the same thing. They had the same problem. They were really upset when he was about to leave and and go to the cross. More and more, they were understanding something's going on. He's talking about leaving us. And so in John chapter 14, he describes this. He's like, yeah, I I am leaving, but but things are still gonna be okay. In John 14, he says, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. I don't know about you, but I'm tempted in the valleys of deep darkness to think like, oh, this is, this is that story. I'm an orphan. I'm alone. And Jesus says, when you're in that deep valley, don't think that you're all alone. He says, I'm not leaving you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while and the world will see me no more, right? He's physically leaving. The world's not gonna see me anymore, but you will see me. If you know me, if you trust me, you will still See me, you'll know you're not an orphan. You'll know you're not abandoned. Because I live, you also will live. And that day you will know that I'm in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Perfect peace, perfect oneness. He goes on and he says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Any rational person has plenty of reasons to be afraid. You'd be crazy not to. But Jesus says, I haven't abandoned you. I'm with you. So you don't have to continue to be afraid. Trust him. Invite him into the valley with you. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you love us and you sent Jesus for us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you for the peace that surpasses all understanding. That you give us supernaturally by your spirit. As you said in John 14, you're not abandoning us as orphans. You're sending your spirit to help us to know that you are indeed present with us. We thank you for that. And we pray that we would know that reality more and more deeply day by day as we depend on you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.